Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 529. Uh, If you are in Portland or the surrounding areas, I'll be doing uh, stand-up at Helium in Portland uh, June 12th to the 14th. If you go to heliumcomedy.com slash Portland, you can get tickets for that. Please do. And um, I'm sure I'll be searching for a donut somewhere in Portland, which will, no matter what it is, be too touristy of a donut and not the real donut, man. Uh, but that's okay. I absolutely adore Portland, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, this episode of the Nerdist Podcast was brought to you by Evolve. Uh, okay, so Evolve is a game by 2K that a lot of people have been very excited about for a long time. We got to play. Uh, it's, it's a four-on-one game, so uh, four of you are essentially hunters, and you're hunting this monster in it, and then someone else plays the monster. And so I played against uh, four Nerdist, Nerdist team members, uh, Malik Forte, Dan Casey, Brian Walton, and Jessica Chobot. And we put that on YouTube and also on the Nerdist.com site. And uh, I'm not going to say who won, uh, but it was pretty, pretty badass. And uh, so uh, this game, Evolve, comes out uh, October 21st. It's on Xbox One, PS4, PC. And just sort of give people a preview, at our Nerdist booth, we're doing an Evolve tournament uh, with 2K. And you can see the competition live if you go to twitch.tv slash Evolve Game. That's Tuesday, June 10th from 3 to 4. Wednesday, June 11th from 5 to 6. Thursday, June 12th from 4 to 5. Uh, and I, if you've been waiting to play this game and you haven't gotten, been able to get your hands on it yet, I, it is 100% worth the wait. So uh, uh, please check out our tournament. Stop by if you're going to go to E3, uh, the Nerdist booth. And uh, that's it. Happy hunting. Hashtag happy hunting. Hashtag evolve. Hashtag hashtag. This episode is Morgan Freeman. And he, he was He was great. Man, he was so great. Just warm and funny and sweet and um I I don't know. I, I don't I don't know how it is that we're getting the guests that we're getting, but uh I am I am not complaining. Um I feel like lately, and I hope this doesn't I hope this isn't driving you guys crazy, but I've noticed that ever since my dad died, um I Whenever I have um, guests on who are around my dad's age, I start asking them questions and advice, and it's uh, there's no other motive than I, I I didn't realize until after this podcast where so I was just asking him a lot of life questions, um, and afterwards I was like, 
I think that's because my dad's not around anymore, and so I'm sort of. It's almost like I'm just. I'm trying to get wisdom from these uh, from these gentlemen, and it. He Morgan Freeman absolutely complied, and uh, and I feel like we learned so much from him. And he was such a such a uh, just a really solid guest. And I, I should tell you that. Uh, he has a, a fantastic show on the Science Channel called Through the Wormhole, which is essentially sort of the – it's the nexus of science and philosophy. So they take philosophical questions um, and, you know, like uh, can we eliminate evil or what is nothing or, you know, uh, could could there potentially be a zombie apocalypse? And they try to answer these philosophical questions um, using science. Through the Wormhole returns today, the day this podcast goes up, which is Wednesday, June 4th. It's at 10 p.m. on the Science Channel. Through the Wormhole, June 4th on the Science Channel. Uh, I've watched a bunch of episodes, and I highly recommend that you do, too. And everything is better with Morgan Freeman's voice on top of it. But he's actually in it, too. So uh, Through the Wormhole, Morgan Freeman, uh, Nurse Podcast number 529. Begin. Now entering Nerdist.com. Morgan Freeman on the Nerdist Podcast. Is this your first podcast? I don't even know what a podcast is. I'll take that as a yes. It's basically a... Um, if that's too much for you, turn it over here. Put it over this yeah, you want some more? Yeah, just keep it on for me. There you go, you got it. If it turns near you, then we can kill it. No, it's perfect. I'm perpetually cold, so the warm room is... I am too. I, I, I can't stand... The temperature gets below 70, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, I know. I know. People, and people never understand when you go to the East Coast, when you go, oh, in California, it was like 60 degrees. We brought out the winter coats, and then they laugh at us. Yeah, right, right. I would live in San Francisco for a while. It got 88 degrees one time. Heat wave! (laughs) But then in San Francisco, it can be warm, and then you step in the shadow of a building, and it's like, where's the... you know what the real temperature (laughs) (laughs) is. San Francisco has the most puzzling weather to me because of that. I guess it's all because of the bay, right? Yeah. It's very, very cold water in the bay. When did you live in San Francisco? 1961, 2, and 3. That must have been an amazing time to be in San Francisco. I think it was. What yeah. was going on then? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, so nice. Uh, it 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 didn't change hands, so to speak. Right. Until nineteen late nineteen sixty. No, no, early nineteen sixty four. I used to live in the Haight. Very nice, quiet neighborhood. <laughs> and yeah. then, and then, I left. <laughs> <laughs> And it was never the same. It was. Ne- it wasn't. It they was... never recovered from your departure. Really? Yeah, that's that's what it was. Wow. But you're from the. Are you? It's. I read that you were born in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I'm from. But then I read that you also didn't. You moved away from there when you. Yeah, were... I was only a toddler when I was shipped back to my grandparents in Mississippi. Yeah, and yeah. did you grow up grandparent? One singular. Huh? <laughs> did you grow up primarily in Mississippi? I did. I did. I spent about three or four years in Chicago as a. Youngster. Yeah. And so at what point did you start to realize that acting was something that, A, you could do, and B, that was a possibility? Um, 
I guess 12 or 13, realizing there was something that I could do. I had done it when I was eight, but it was just a lark. But by 12 or 13, seventh grade, I was like, goodness, look at this. (laughs) (laughs) And was Chicago the place that... No, 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 Mississippi was the place. You, oh, you were acting in Mississippi? Yeah. Why, well, you're surprised. <laughs> I just don't really think of Mississippi as the acting capital, you know, especially. What, what year was not that? not the acting capital, but <laughs> when I was in school there, and this was in the, started in 1949, and that was six years of schooling there, they had an awful lot of cultural activity for kids. We sang, we danced, we acted. I was in the band, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Were you about to say shit like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> you can swear on the podcast, by the way. It's, uh, uh, that's good. Because yeah. uh, I do have favorite terms that get point across. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I always, I always I, forget to tell people at the top, like, you can say whatever you want. This okay, is, fine. Yeah. All right. Now, I was going to say something closer to dainty things like that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so when you ultimately, what, what made you move to San Francisco? Oh, I don't want to tell you that. Okay. But I had to get out of, I was in New York. Uh, I had been in Los Angeles, and then I came, went to, Came to, went to New York. I don't know where I am half the time. Yeah. Went to New York, and then uh, I stayed in New York about five months, and then I went to San Francisco. Yeah. And then what? But I can it, say, I, I can say, tell you this much. I was looking over my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> no, wonder, no wonder you were so excited about how nice and quiet San Francisco was for those couple of years. <laughs> but then something got you back to New York. I mean, my first exposure to you, and I'm sure for a lot of people, was Electric Company, which was, I still love i i sometimes will go down the youtube rabbit hole of electric company clips and that was children's television workshop at the time right Mm -hmm. so how did you that idea to hey let's let's take the kids who are graduating from sesame street and teach them through comedy and and music and what how did you uh how did you land over there i've been in new york for quite a while i came back i went back to new york in 1963 september so, um, it was a struggle up. Um, got my first job in 1967, and then I auditioned in 1971 for the electric company. Got it. Hmm. I mean, it was an amazing. I mean, that was an amazing cast, and you and Rena Moreno and and Bill Cosby was yeah. doing stuff, and yeah. Tom Lehrer. Yeah. yeah. Tom, not Lehrer, but we had a lot of other people in the background there. Yeah. We had Mel Brooks. We had um, Joan Rivers. John, well, all those voices. Yeah. They look great. What do you remember about uh, working on that show? Yeah, that's a loaded question. You know that, right? Why? <laughs> <laughs> because um, I don't remember much. And I remember a lot. 
But it's so mundane stuff, such mundane stuff. You go in at 9 o'clock in the morning, you leave at 5 o'clock in the evening. Yeah. And you do that five days a week for six or eight weeks. And then you go off and play for a while. And you come back and do it all over again. That go on for, that was 71 to 74. Six. 76. And then they ran it for another 10 years. Five. Oh, they just ran it for five years. Yeah. 76 to 83, I think. Yeah. How many years is that? Seventy-six, eighty-three. Yeah, six. Wake up. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Your voice is so soothing. I'm sorry. Puts me in a trance. So then, uh, during that time, were you auditioning for other things? Were you were you were you pretty exclusive to that show? What was it? What, during, what, during which time? During, during the time during, that we were working on the yeah. electrical company, yeah. you can't audition for anything else. You can't do, and you can't even you couldn't do anything else. The electrical company, because it was a children's show. You were pretty much Loctite. Okay. Uh, uh, it's a little upsetting that you couldn't do stuff on your downtime. Not even plays or? Mm, no. Yeah. You, can't, see, you couldn't do a play because you can only do it for a very short time. Yeah. Right. Were so. you, uh, since it was a children's show, were you, uh, were you asked to kind of behave a certain way in public? Or uh, uh, other people I've known that have been in kind of family shows. We had somebody involved with research who decided that I should look a certain way. Really? Yeah. Oof. Which was what? Well, I don't know since I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so someone was there to try and say, like, well, when you go out, at night or when you're out on the weekends, just dress like this or be like this? No. It shouldn't straighten your hair. Hmm. What a weird note. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So from that experience, did you immediately want to go, um, did you want to start acting in film, television? Was, was theater, did that, is that what... Is that what? Well, I always wanted to move. I always wanted to act in movies. Childhood on up, I was sort of laser fixed on getting into the movies. Everything I did, I thought, was a stepping stone towards somebody saying, "You come here, come here. I'm gonna put you in the movies." Did you have a plan from early on? Yeah. Were you pretty focused? What and keep working, <laughs> no matter what. No matter what. Was there ever a plan B? Was there ever anything else you thought, oh, if this doesn't work out, I'll do this? Or were you pretty, pretty focused? I, I, I tried to develop a plan B when it wasn't working out. I didn't have an if it wouldn't work out because I think if you have an if it doesn't work out, you might as well go on and go for that because that just sets you up. You know? Yeah. I tell people who say, oh, my child wants to be in the movies, but wants to, wants to be an actor. But I tell them, you know, get a fallback. Do something so that you know, get an education so that if it doesn't work out, well, if you do that, it ain't going to work out. Yeah. If you have the safety net, the, the lure of comfort is too strong. It's just too, too, too hard. It's just too hard, you know. It, even if you start out and you, boom, you zoom, and all of a sudden you're, that only lasts a short while. You're going to pay your dues, I don't care. Before is better than after. Yeah. Yeah. You know. What was keeping you going during those times when you sort of felt that 
I mean, did you ever think, well, I guess this is it. I should just give up. Or did you? Oh, yeah. Uh, 1980. Uh, I did a movie. And it, it was over in December. 1981, 82. Phone didn't ring. So now I think, heck, I better start doing something because I'm not paying rent and I'm living off someone else for the most part. That doesn't work well for me, so I thought maybe I'll go to the Tax and Limousine Commission and get a license. Maybe I can become a chauffeur. I like to drive. I'm pretty good at that. And so that was what I was getting ready to do. Hmm. But then I got an audition. And the audition happened to be for um, Paul Newman. And I knew Paul because of his daughter, Nell. She was working off Broadway at some times. So I auditioned for him, and he said, oh, shh, and that, that part's already been cast. She said, oh. well, I'm sorry. I said, oh, no, no worries, you know. I'm very happy to have come in and get to see you. Good luck on this. He was producing, directing, and starring. <laughs> so I left, and he caught me at the elevator and said, come back, come back. And he just gave me a part. And it's kind of like a job or like money, you know. Once you got some, you can get some. It's, I don't know why that works like that. But at the end of 1982, at the end of 1982, I was working in a playoff Broadway and was waiting to start filming um, Paul Newman's movie, which I had the job. Uh, I was directing a play, and I was taking over a friend's position on a soap opera. And it's like, boom, boom, jeez, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Tear up the taxi chauffeur license. Yeah, oh, well, I never even went to the Texas Limousine Commission because Paul saved me from that. Hmm. And from that Ignominy. point on, it was yeah. From that point on, I was I was sailing. Yeah. What uh, what type of auditioner are you? Do you do you like lousy? <laughs> <laughs> the audition process sucks. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. I mean, I was I directed a movie once, and it's the same thing on both sides of the of the desk. It's terrible, you know. A lot of good people come in, and you're trying to decide who's best. Um, and uh, my. My attitude, my there's a word I'm looking for and I can't find, but I mean I'm arrogant about my talent, about what I can do, you know. So you walk walk to a place and say, okay, the one you're looking for is here. I don't have to audition. I I can do that. <laughs> Doesn't go with that well. <laughs> but I never did like auditioning. But the best parts that I got, I think, I auditioned for. Oh, really? Yeah, early on. Early on. I, the best parts I got later on, I mean, once I became what you call a star. Right. Yeah. But prior, um, I auditioned for um, 
a wino in a play once. And I got the job. And I was awesome. <laughs> uh, they took the play. We did it off Broadway. They took it to, to Broadway. I got the Clarence Darrant Award. And I got a Tony nomination. Whoa. Yeah. You, you're surprised. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> It's nice. It's just your voice. It's His so nice. Quivering, John. Yeah, yeah. You see what you did to him? <laughs> Not surprised. I'm, I'm on the journey with you right now. Yeah. As, as if I knew you at the time, and that, that would have been, been my reaction as a friend. Well, now, here's the irony of all of that. The play lasted a week. One week. It opened and it closed. But there I was, sitting pretty. So, and then, uh, you know, we moved on. I went down to the public theater and, and uh, did some Shakespeare with Joe Papp. You know who Joe Papp was? No. Joseph Papp. I think his name was full name. He was Papadopoulos or something like that. But it was Joe Papp in New York. He was a, a, sort of an entrepreneur he ran the public theater, New York Public Theater, and the Delacorte Theater, which was Shakespeare in the Park, Free Shakespeare in the Park. He organized that, and he was Mr. Theater in New York. And I got to be part of his not entourage, just not an entourage, but family, you know, actors who we would call on. What did you learn during that time? You always learn that you can learn, you know. Um, I did, uh, I'd never done any Shakespeare t to speak of. And so I was hired for Julius Caesar, played the part of Casca. And we did the play, and one of my best reviewers worked for Newsweek magazine called Jack Kroll and his review said Morgan Freeman was wasted as Casca oh. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise me <laughs> good, good save good save You're catching on <laughs> <laughs> so the difference between Theater acting and film acting, I mean, ultimately, you're, you know, you're playing characters in both, but the mechanics are so different, are so wildly, incredibly different. Uh, you're going to do a play, you're going to learn an entire play. I don't care if it's two acts, three acts, five acts. You're going to learn every line of dialogue and then hope it doesn't, like, fly away in the middle of the play like it will do sometimes. Sure. Movies, nothing, nothing, nothing to it. If it goes away on you, you would say, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> can we go back? <laughs> of course. <laughs> sure you can. Nothing to it. Uh, and it, it doesn't take very long to do a movie. I mean, if you're going to do a big movie and they say, well, we're going to be shooting for the next three months or four months or whatever, that's it. Three months, four months, it's done. 
you walk away until you have to sell it. Right. Like we're doing here with Wormhole. <laughs> Is, uh... Do you get more attached to a character if you're in a play because you're you're basically in it every day for a really long time, months on end? But in a movie, it's sort of like, oh, I'll do this line and I'll just it's, it's it feels like a little more disposable in a way. No, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, uh, there are actors who are attachable, and I'm not attachable. I don't get attached to character. I'm only attached when we're rolling. I'm only attached when I'm on the stage. When I walk off stage, I'm unattached. I leave it right at, right at the line where you cross from stage to backstage. When they say cut, I said, I'm done. It's a wrap. I forget everything. <laughs> <laughs> Is it challenging for you to work with actors who have to live in the character the entire time? Even no, like- it's not. No, 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 no. Just back away. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has their way of working, and you have to respect it. Yeah. So, no, I don't, I don't, uh, unless they're demanding that I do it, then it becomes a challenge because you have to say, no, 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 fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that uh, it's really important to get to know, like, when you're working with a cast, do you guys hang out or is it better, like, no, you know, when we're. No, we don't hang out. I, I have never been able to when I did I did Coriolanus at the uh, Delacorte which is Shakespeare in the Park um, with uh, Gloria Foster playing my mother Volumnia we hung out Uh, I seldom ever do that but after the show we would always go and eat and uh, take cabs, because we lived up a west side of New York, and we'd take a cab home. She lived in, in the 80s, I lived in the 90s, so it was easy. But other than that, no, it's not. We, we see each other on Saturday, and that's, it. that's pretty much it. Do you think it's helped give you longevity that you are pretty, like you seem like a pretty even-keeled guy. Do you attribute that to being able to treat acting like a job and not so much like something that overtakes your psyche? I'm afraid to answer that in the affirmative because if I say I'm you just take acting as a job... Oh, then people... Yeah. And it's not really so. I mean, it's, it's like choice... Uh, it's not what I do, it's what I am, mm-hmm. is the way I would put it. So, no, I, I, I don't know. Longevity is tricky stuff, you know. Um, maybe it has to do with how long it takes you to get to some place where you're recognized as having correct chops. Right. Um, I'm asked often, do you resent that your career took so long to get stabilized? No, because nowhere is it written that it had to ever be stabilized. Hmm. Uh, As long as you get there, how long it takes is 
afterwards. We're say. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and how old were you when you really started to feel that, oh, this is actually finally clicking in after, after all this time? When, when did that... Was that around Driving Miss Daisy? Was that where you sort of felt like, oh... No, I felt that way... Uh, I felt that way two or three different times. <laughs> 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 and I got my first New York job... In 1967, I was 30 years old. So, and I would just went from job to job to job to job to job. Of course, I'm thinking, hey, it's happening. I'm here. No worries, right? But then you have these these roller coaster times. Um, just have to go through them, you know. But uh, when I was 50, I felt like, okay, now we're home. <laughs> I'm in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> and I've not had a, a real downtime since, since 1987. Wow. Do you think it helps you appreciate it more when you've experienced, I mean, do you feel like there's value in the valleys? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I, no, there has to be value in the valleys. Uh, it's, it's like learning to work, I think, you know. You don't know the value of anything until you work for it. And I think the, uh, the valleys in your professional life make you really appreciate when you get stable, you know. Uh, because it just doesn't ever have to be. It's not written anywhere that it has to be. Or at least it's not written anywhere that you can see it. Of course. <laughs> well. Do you ever, and this might be a dumb question, but do you ever miss any of the valleys? Because... But, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was a perfect answer. Though. That was those terms you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean okay. That's a perfect answer. Go ahead. You just mean what? Well, I mean like, it, do you ever get because if you get too comfortable sometimes, do you feel like you need a certain amount of hunger? Like, what keeps you hungry? What keeps you wanting to when when you could just be comfortable and go? I have enough. I don't I really. Got, I got what you're saying. I got you're saying. Listen, I think when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't miss that valley unless you're out of it. Sure. Um, and if the valley is deep enough and dark enough, you just spend most of your time out of it when you're out of it, <laughs> making sure it's not creeping up behind you. What keeps you hungry? I'm not hungry. I just like what I'm doing. How's that? That's perfect. <laughs> okay. okay. That's perfect. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of going through period where I'm just sort of trying to figure out what everything like, Oh, now that I'm starting to get older, what does everything mean? And what is it? What of everything that I've learned up to now, does it have value and what can I throw away? And where I'm looking for the wisdom of experience. Really? Yeah. Constantly looking for the wisdom of the experience. You're looking for some deeper meaning in your life. Well, I'm just sort of, you know, now that I'm, I'm 42. Oh, my God. This is sort of the... Your life is about over, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just mean, this is, 
No. All right. I'm an idiot. Look, I, I just mean this is the age recently where I've started to realize, oh, well, you know, there's... When you're younger, you just think it goes on forever and ever and ever, and then you get to a certain point in your life. You go, okay, well, there's an end point, and what does this mean, and am I making the right choices, and, you know, like... Did you not, or, or do you just kind of have the personality that doesn't worry about st- stuff like that? I guess so. <laughs> really. Um, what does it all mean? Yeah. doesn't mean anything. You're going to live, and then you're going to die. What you do in between is up to you. I mean, basically. Sure. It, I, I, I don't... That, <laughs> life is its own reward. Fuck the rest of it. All right. <laughs> My dad used to say something pretty similar. There you go. Don't sweat the small stuff. Right. Yeah. You must not have been listening. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know. Of course, my dad says this, but most of his life he was like sweating the small stuff. But I guess it. Uh, I just want to make sure that I don't. I want to try to figure it out now before I. You know. I don't want to figure yeah. it out on my deathbed. I'm like, oh, I should have just chilled out. Yeah, that's something to think about. You do not want to be on your deathbed regretting choices that you refused to make because of some, I don't know what, social norm or someone else's idea of what's right for you or any of that. Um, I think in life you make choices and you don't make bad ones. You just make choices. So do you think we assign, are you able to look at some, because I feel that you can look at anything positively or negatively. Are you good at taking a situation and going, well, here's what's good about it and sloughing off all of the negative crap? Well, you know, my next birthday, I'll be 77. So I think by this time, I have learned not to pet the sweaty shit. Yeah. So, uh, is the glass half empty or half full? In my life, it's always half em- half full. It has to be half full. Uh, I-, I don't. Th- if you've got some, you've got it. You know, you're not struggling to get. You know, like a look a little bit in there so that you know you can look around and say, okay, I, th- I still got some water left. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, did you uh, arrive at that, or was there something about the way you were brought up, or was there something away about the way that you... Yes, all of that. You are the sum of, the, you're the sum of all your parts, aren't you? Sure. I mean, you have the, your, your environment, your teaching, your nurturing, your experiences, times you got your butt kicked times you kick someone else's butt, they all come together to make you. And what am I talking about? (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about how you you arrive at this type of comfort, how you arrive at this type of, you know, at this wisdom. Do you earn it or is it ingrained in you or is it a part of your upbringing? And you're saying that it's all of those things. It's all of those things, yes. Good. You were listening. <laughs> I do listen. I do yeah. listen sometimes. Well, that's good because I'm, sometimes I just babble. No, please. <laughs> you know? Babble away. 
But I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that's one of the reasons why I love watching you and things is because there's a certain, you know, even, even if your characters are intense, there's something that's very comfortable and wise about you that I think is, it's really nice to, it feels good. I think that's why people like listening to you narrate things too. It's like, oh, Morgan Freeman, this just feels nice. <laughs> I like that comfortable and wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's but maybe that's part of the you know making it at fifty. It's like you had that, you know. I mean, when someone makes it at twenty or twenty-five, you're like, oh, they're kind of entertaining, but they don't. I don't really feel like there's m- much of a film. You don't like Justin Bieber. <laughs> no, I'm, of course I do. I mean, who doesn't? Oh, the, ma- the man's a talent. <laughs> <laughs> the man? <laughs> the almost man is yeah, a talent. Yeah. Okay. I just said that. I'm not really in... I think you should stick to it. I think you should let people think that. Really? That you're a huge Justin Bieber fan. That's, that would make news. Really? Yeah. Well, I've never heard him. <laughs> <laughs> I've only heard about him. He acts up a lot. Well, <clears throat> I, mean, I wish him luck. But he's a perfect example of someone who got super famous, super young. I mean, you know, the, the tabloids, the entertainment business, they play into all the worst parts of being a teenager, and they chew these poor kids up, and they spit them out. It's, it's the poor kid didn't have a chance. Yeah, parenting. Yeah. Well, we, we had another one back there, Home Alone. Yeah, Macaulay Culkin, yeah. Macaulay, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Sadness. The sadness is in the parenting. Kids do what kids do. Someone has to hold on to them. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I'm glad that it didn't happen to me. Because <laughs> I would have, I know, with my attitude about things, I would have really jumped off the deep end of something and crash-landed. Do you feel like that because of the time period that you grew up in, that the, but the types of the, like now, I feel like it's pretty easy for young people to get lured into a lot of shitty stuff. But you know, I, when you were growing up, I, the uh, adolescence didn't last from twelve to thirty, right? I mean, no, like no, no, much... no, no. Adolescence was over at eighteen. Yeah, <clears throat> eighteen. Okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh no, and plus, I, growing up in a very, very small area, town, and I, it wasn't really that small a town, but I grew up in an area of that town that was my village. So I could say pretty unequivocally that I was raised by a village. This sort of thing where you did not have the anonymity of crowds, yeah. so you can't go out and do shit. And then nobody say anything about it. Right. You know, small town, you step out of line, there's four or five adults. Junior? <laughs> you know. Was that, a, was that a training ground for being famous in a weird way? In a weird way. I, I maybe not even that weird. I was famous. Uh, by 15, I was well known in, in, in that town. Yeah. Yeah. But just the idea that anything you do, that someone could go, hey, look, that guy over there, he's doing a thing. He's ain't doing that it. guy over there. That's Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's the big problem. Not, not some 
body. It's you. I know you. I know your mama. I know, I know your grandmama. And I know they don't allow you to do shit like that out in the street. <laughs> so, I mean, straighten up or I'll have to report. Don't get, don't get a whipping in school. When I was in school, they would have whipped your butt. So I thought it was a good thing. <laughs> no, think it was a good thing. At that time, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> don't get a whipping in school. Because you're absolutely going to get one at home. Yeah. No doubt about it. You what? <laughs> go get me a peach switch. <laughs> don't get. Don't make me have to go get it myself. Oh. <laughs> you had to pick your own weapon. Yeah. And it had to have a lot of. <laughs> 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 yep. If it didn't have the proper. <laughs> you, you just wait right here. I'll be right back. Yep. Does the fame part ever get in the way of the 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 craft part? I mean, you know, you obviously you want to act, you want to you want you want to be in films, you want to do you want to be in plays. Is it, is it the fame part? Like, ah, oh, it just gets in the way. I just want to do this thing that I care about. Interesting question. The fame part is really what you gotta have. In order to work. You're not famous, nobody wants you. Uh, particularly in the movies, you know. I mean, I would have been perfectly happy to be a um, character actor, under the radar type. Uh, I remember Robert De Niro's early days of doing those incredible roles that he was doing when he did Raging Bull and... And and the um, one we played with baseball, yeah. De Niro could walk in the streets and nobody would recognize him. I mean, that's how much of a chameleon he was. But then he became a star. He, he doesn't dare walk the streets. Hmm. Same thing. So yes, in that sense, it gets it gets in the way. Um, you can't go to the cleaners. You can't go to the grocery store, drugstore. You can't just go for a stroll. Was I finished? Yeah, you were. <laughs> you did great. That's a line from. No, that's a line from uh, <laughs> Richard Pryor. <laughs> did you know Richard? Yeah. What was yeah. What was he like as a? Well, I didn't get to meet him until he was, you know, pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. I thought he was the funniest thing on two feet. He had this wino and um, heroin addict in a conversation. And the heroin addict was trying, hey, baby, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> Was I finished? <laughs> what were some of your favorite roles? Like, what have you, even even if it, even if they weren't in movies that you know were huge blockbusters? Anything I got great reviews in. <laughs> yeah. Do you read the reviews or do you do you? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> The only reviews I don't read about me are the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> and I had one. You did? One? I, yep. Who did that? 
guy in Philadelphia writing for the Philadelphia Bulletin. We were doing a play called The Recruiting Officer. It was like old 1600s George Farquhar. And this guy says that I spoke my lines like I'd learned them with a metronome. Mm-hmm. That was all he had to say about Morgan. So, okay. I have a rejoinder for that sort of thing. Not to be spoken in public. <laughs> <laughs> but that's about that's about it, I think. I don't I don't think I've gotten bad reviews. When you're working on something like Driving Miss Daisy or Shawshank, or it, does it feel different than any other movie? Or is it just like, oh, I'm just going to work, and then are you surprised by, oh, wow, this is actually one of the biggest movies in film? No, when you're working, you're just working. I'm just going to work. Uh, what you pray for always when you take a job is to know what the heck you're doing. You know who the character is. Um, luckily, uh, just about every movie I've done, uh, I've known very well who the character was. I've done a couple of plays where I was searching around forever trying to find out who, what, what does this mean, you know? But that, that's when you don't turn down work. Just say, we want you to do it. Okay, fine. I got to pay the rent. And, and then you're making $70 a week or something like that. So with those characters that you're like going into that you know what they're about, yeah. can you condense them into one sentence? Like, you know, No. No, no, no. That's too shallow for a character you, for you to play. You can't. I don't know. I played a pimp in a movie. Uh, and he was a very volatile type person. But very um, seductive. I mean, he could seduce women. He, that was his thing. Uh, but he, he was very mercurial. See? And you can't. You can say, okay, so he was very mercurial. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's very volatile. He's up and down. He's up and down. He's really happy. He's really sad. He's really freaked out. He's angry. Um, mellow, easygoing, until whatever. Maybe you didn't even know. Set him off, and he was murderous. Yeah, okay, up and down, up and down, sideways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you play some character like Hulk Colburn in Driving Miss Daisy, and this this guy is like. Class, you know, he's, he's just doesn't much get flapped, you know. If he has to speak up, he does, but it's not because he got pissed off. Just decided it's time for me to speak up. <laughs> <laughs> do you learn from these characters as you're portraying them? Like, do you learn stuff about yourself or? Well, every character you play, you're going to bring some of yourself, too. Uh, 
Someone asked Bob Hoskins once, what did he prefer, good guys or bad guys? And he said, bad guys are more fun. Because uh, that volatility I was talking about with um, the character past black. Yeah, I mean, say, I didn't know that was in there. <laughs> you know? But it is. Uh, seducing women. Uh, you're trying to uh, turn them out as the term. You know, you got a moneymaker. So I don't know why you're wasting your time giving it away. Women see that. They get it. It's a hard life, but there it is. So we're, we have a little bit of time left with you, and I want to talk. We do? We do, just a little bit. There's two things that I want to talk about before we... we I want to talk about wormhole. I want to okay. talk about in the wormhole. Okay, I thought science. I was going to stick with prostitution a little longer. Do you want to talk about prostitution? <laughs> <laughs> so what else would you say to a... Oh. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's sort of... <laughs> so many prostitute stories. Um... I want to talk about I want to talk about wormhole, but first I I I, I didn't know this that um, you had your pilot's license. You you flew for a, mm-hmm. how long did you fly? As long as I could. I got hurt in '08, August of '08, so I flew up until I couldn't handle. You know, I lost the use of my left hand to all intents and purposes in terms of flying. So that stopped that. And did you, was it something that you did from a young age, or did you... No, 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 I didn't start flying until 02. I wanted, I went into the Air Force when I was, I tried to join the Air Force when I was 16 or 17, and they said, no, 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 we'll still be here, you go back and finish high school. Hmm. I graduated when I was 17, that's what I was, I was 16. Uh, So now I went into the Air Force with the idea of, Becoming a fighter pilot, really. Then um, I got disabused of that notion uh, when it came crunch time. Uh, I was part of Eisenhower's effort to forestall the situation we have in the country today with the military-industrial complex. So he was reducing the military and I was part of that reduction because all the time I was in the military, it was I was never suited to it. I question authority. You just can't do that sort of thing. Um, so, but I didn't want to fly, and I had gotten my recommendations for school and shit. And I went and sat in the cockpit of a T-33 jet trainer. And big epiphany, huge life-changing epiphany. This is not what you want. (laughs) This whole thing just sort of flowed through me. 
your whole thing about war is movies. You don't want the real thing. That's insane. Get out of here. <laughs> Go be in the movies. Go be in the movies. I was in, at, at uh, Norton Air Force Base. Is that up near San Brendan, you know? Um, I think so. I'm not sure. You don't have to know. Okay. But I was up at San Bernardino, and it's just a bus ride across to L.A. So I got on the bus, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yes. You migrated from I'm, military to, to acting. Yeah. Came right straight to Los Angeles. What, what uh, types of planes did you fly when you got your license? Uh, well, I started off. And an archer, that's like a single-engine plane with fixed wheels. I think the archer has fixed wheels. And and then I flew a lot of uh, small aircraft, just learning and getting my my instrument rating. And then I bought a a Piper Arrow, a single-engine plane. Then I bought uh, into a um, Seneca, a Piper Seneca is a twin-engine plane, and then bought a uh, Cessna 414, which is a larger twin-engine plane, and then I bought a Citation 501 jet, and then I bought a Citation 2 jet, and now I own a SJ-30. Is it the the idea that you could accomplish that, or is it, is it, does it feel like what is it? Since childhood, I've been fascinated by the idea of flight. I would really like to be able to do it with just my own wings. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> do you ever see any bird go in for a landing? You ever see a flock of geese? Uh, I mean, an entire flock of geese, maybe three or four hundred geese, go in for a landing? It's an amazing sight that they have so, they were so easy in the air. They know it so well. They just circle around like that, spiraling down and into the wind and come in. And they never, they never bump into each other. It's amazing stuff. And that's what you want. Yeah. You know, I used to have dreams that I could fly, just fly, fall off of something, fall off a cliff or something, and then fly down. Well, let's talk for a minute about uh, Into the Wormhole, which I watched uh, a couple episodes of. Through. The, through the Wormhole, which I, which I watched a couple episodes of. The, they did? Uh, only two? I, well, they only sent me two. Um, Can I have the rest of them? Um, they're not ready yet. Only when they are, you will have them. Get them ready! <laughs> you, you might get hooked. Well, I already am, because it, it, what it ignited in me was the... It, it has the soul of the... Shows that I watch in the 70s of just sort of like, what does it all mean? And all these things tied together and asking questions. And the, like, it has the sort of, it has the, this mystery and gravity of that, but it, but it looks contemporary. It looks modern. And there's oh, a lot it's of very cool- modern. It's very contemporary. Um, we, we deal with what is now, primarily. But there are a lot of questions around what is now. For instance... You look on television, what do you see? Dead people. Mm-hmm. There's a zombie shows all over the place. Movies. World War Z. Mm-hmm. Mm. About zombies. Jesus. 
Transformers sick of zombies, you know? And, but now we do a show about zombies. And in our show, we tell you, show you, that there are such things in life as zombies. There is a, let's call it a spore, that infects ants. And it lodges in the brain of the ant. And it makes the ant climb to the highest point of a tree. Lock its jaws on a leaf and die. That spore grows out of the brain of the ant into the tree and then it rains. It's, this is a fungus. Mm-hmm. And it just rains spores down on the rest of the colonies. To get the rest of the ants. To get everybody else something to grow with. So the idea is, could as, you know, you're exploring the idea of could a zombie apocalypse happen, could it could it jump to humans? It has. We were just talking about that. Were we not? What 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 does a zombie is just something that whose mind is controlled by an outside force? You're controlled. <laughs> he just indicated to my phone. He's right. I am I'm controlled by this. Yeah. I mean, most people who have a profession or a, a job are well, walk down any street and see how many people are looking at where they're going. They're not. They're not, <laughs> they're not even doing it when they're driving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's total control. And that is a that is a form of zombieism, uh, we say. Uh, will there be an apocalypse? I don't know. You think? Yeah. It depends. You know. Yeah. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think there's going to be like an apocalypse. I don't think we're going to have anything approaching something like World War Z. But we have to recognize that zombieism is, is with us. It is a real a, a reality. Well, I just then the fact that you say it makes me. I would believe anything you say. By the way, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say. I believe you, Morgan Freeman. Anything that comes out of your mouth, I am automatically going to go. Well, that's probably a real thing because Morgan Freeman said it. It means I have to be very damn careful about what I say, doesn't it? <laughs> you kind of do. <laughs> or you could have a lot of fun with people. Not for long. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the zombie apocalypse? Well, no, because then they'll do that a few times, and pretty soon what you say doesn't mean shit. (laughs) I guess that's true. Yeah. But you've earned enough credit at this point. I think you could get away with it five or six times, if you wanted to. Maybe. But I like the show that, uh, as opposed to just a typical, hey, here's something science-y show... The, the thesis of each show is a question. Yeah. What, you know, is this a zombie apocalypse possible or is, is poverty genetic or is it, um, you know, is it behavior that we learn? Right. Uh, and that's a very interesting, it's a very interesting uh, investigation 
into that question of whether or not, I mean, we know that it's not genetic. It's a question primarily of location, primarily where you grow up, where you happen to be on the planet. Uh, if you were born in India to the wrong caste, that's it. That's where you are. Forget about it. If you're born in the United States, it doesn't make any difference. You can go from there to there, and that's all up to you. But in India, if you're untouchable, you're untouchable. If you're poor, you're poor. Yeah. It's just that's the way it works. This, the episode starts out with you saying, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, and yet I ended up, you know, this idea of poverty versus wealth, you know, now I'm, now I'm in movies, now I have money, you know, like it wasn't, for me, it, that was not, that was not. No, a, I was not, and no, no. Uh, and there was, another, there was another part to that whole argument also, as, and that is nurturing and, uh, and um, environment. Now, I grew up poor, but not poverty-stricken. Uh, I didn't ever think, I was never told, I was never given to understand that where I was was where I would be. I was given to understand, particularly by the time I got into uh, junior high school, you can be anything you want to be. It's up to you. Hence the feeling that I grew up with when it's time to go, get on the bus, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, this, is that part of the... Is that part of the secret of that? Is that if you're in a society where everyone's going, you'll never get any better, you'll never get any better, you'll never get any better, chances are that... Chances are you won't, yeah. But if you're in a society, go, look, you may not have anything now, but you know what? Go out and make your thing. Yeah, keep working. Just keep, keep going to school. Keep uh, nose to the grindstone, your shoulder to the wheel. Just keep going. And yeah, there was a way out of this. Does it... This might be... a a little bit of a stretch, but is this, does this factor in at all? I mean, you also, did you have much of a relationship with Nelson Mandela? Yeah. And so what did you learn about this from him? I didn't learn any of this from him. I knew all of this by the time I met him. Uh, we were, let's say, kindred spirits. Uh, I didn't sit at his knee and learn anything. Uh, I have no political genes, and he's pretty much a total politician, just natural, knows how to do that. I have no clue. I'm very bad at it. Uh, say things I have no business saying to people I don't have any business saying them to, <laughs> shit like that, you know. Um, so, no, I didn't, I don't, I didn't, um, what, I, what I learned from Madiba is that one quality, I think, that he has, and I'd like to have it myself. Um, but that's not so. I do have it myself. He was always self-assured. From way back, he was very self-assured. When he first went into um, prison, 
they issued all of the, there were nine of them, one Indian and the eight blacks. And they issued the Indian long pants and the blacks short pants. And the Indian, his name was um, Ahmed Kathrada, called him Kathy. So Kathy said, I, well, shit, I'm not wearing this, you know. I, I'm, we're, we're in this together, so I'm not wearing this. My diva said, no, wear it. We'll all get long pants. <laughs> Shit like that, you know. Just had this assurance. And, uh, and the sure knowledge uh, of how to control people. You know, he eventually he controlled the guards at Robben Island. He said early in his stay, they will call me Mr. And when he left Robin Island, he was Mr. Mandela to every guard. It's just, it's just, just having a sense of yourself. He knew that compassion was the greatest tool in interpersonal relationships. The reason he became Mr. Mandela is because he just completely seduced the guards at Robin Island. Garb would come in and he would say good morning, whatever the guy's name was. How is your mother? Or whoever he knew was ill or not doing well in that man's family, his children, stuff like that. He would ask about them. <laughs> it's just total breakdown. You're just sh- shredding their, their fear and anger. You know? Wow. Just as we're sort of, um, just as we're wrapping up, when you look back at everything you've done, or do you feel like, yes, I did it. I did the thing that I wanted to do. Or do you still feel like, oh, I, there's still some more things. Yeah, what I feel like is I'm doing it. I've done it means that I'm done. Yeah. I'm not done. No, I hope not. No, we're not done. Mm. Oh. <laughs> no. Well, um, it was a really honor to meet you and, and a fantastic chat. And I hope you enjoyed the Google Cluster. And I, we wrap up the show. Yeah, it's gone. I know. Mm-hmm. You ate it. Yeah. It's delicious. I, I ate it while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> As we, uh, we normally wrap up the show by saying, enjoy your burrito, which is a mantra that we say at the end of the podcast because it essentially means enjoy your present as it's happening. And I feel like, would it be too much to ask if you could just sort of wrap up the podcast with a little bit of narration, just a couple final thoughts that land on Enjoy Your Burrito, because I, I feel like we're never going to be able to top having you do that. I said to you once earlier on that I believe that life is its own reward. This is like saying doing good is its own reward. Enjoy your burrito. (laughs) Jonah just crushed his bottle. Thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Murder on My Mind, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus explores the circumstances leading up to the murder of two young men and the mistrials of the man accused of killing them. 
Up-and-coming rapper YNW Melly gained notoriety in the hip-hop world for his shocking lyrics and criminal exploits. When two of his best friends were gunned down in a drive-by shooting, investigators suspected the young rapper staged the scene. But after not one, but two trials that ended in hung juries and new evidence that may place YNW Melly at the scene of the crime, his trial has been paused indefinitely. With countless twists and turns, Law and Crime covers all angles of the case and begs the question, is this young artist the victim of a witch hunt or a silver-tongued devil who's evil to the core? Listen to Murder on My Mind exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.